if you look up the word mission in the dictionary, you will see a number of different definitions. Ascending or being sent for some duty or purpose. A body of persons appointed to go somewhere to perform a service or carry out an activity, like a political mission, a military mission, or even an educational mission. And then down the line, you will actually read the chief function or responsibility of an organization or institution. The chief function or responsibility of an organization or institution. And as I read that particular definition, I thought about the different organizations or institutions that are in our culture, and I I thought about, well, I wonder if they actually have a defined mission and a defined statement about what they are trying to accomplish. And do not ask me why, but the first company that I thought about was Krispy Kreme Donuts. (laughs) And so I googled KrispyKreme.com, and right there is their mission. Listen to the mission of Krispy Kreme. To make the most awesome donuts on the planet every single day. <laughs> and you know, they, they do a pretty good job of that. They really do. They know their mission and they fulfill their mission every day. Starbucks. Um, we have some Starbucks employees uh, in our midst, or at least uh, who are in our congregation. And their mission is to inspire and nurture the human spirit One person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. You can see some of our Starbucks folks to see if they're accomplishing their mission, but they certainly are um, doing a great job of spreading their name and being successful at it. And then Walmart. Walmart's mission is to save people money so they can live better. I would say that they very likely are saving people money. (laughs) All right. Finally, the United Nations. The United Nations. To maintain world peace and security. To develop relations among nations. Foster cooperation between nations to solve economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian problems. And that is a massive mission, and they seek to go about that in all the various layered ways in which they gather representatives from every nation. But that drives us to ask, of course, the question that you're probably already thinking. So what is the mission of the church? What is the primary mission of the church? And if you look at the church at large today, and you you watch things either on social media or on television or tape recordings or wherever you may see it, you might get the idea that the church is designed to be a powerful political organization to try to move and shake people and leaders in order to control the affairs of government. There are certainly people who are in churches who believe that. You may also get the idea that the church is really a a glorified social club. That 
that if, if you don't want to join the YMCA or you don't have enough money to, to join the country club or you can't get into the Lions Club, then you can join the church because these are still a group of people like those other organizations where they get together on a, on a semi-regular basis or regular basis and they smile and talk to each other and drink coffee and laugh and it's a way to interact with people. Sometimes you may get the idea that really the church is just a safe place to hang out for for maybe troubled teens or struggling adults. You you may get that idea. We, of course, know that that's not the main purpose of the church and the mission of the church. But then, listen, sometimes we might even get it in our minds that the primary mission of the church is corporate worship, that we can sing songs to God, that we can pray prayers to God, that we can read the scriptures and so that we can hear about God, and that's the primary mission, to gather together on Sundays in order to praise Him, in order to worship Him. But others might say, no, it's not really worship, it's, it's actually fellowship, so that we can actually have sweet interaction and relationship and be blessed by caring for one another and hugging one another and praying for one another. And, and some would say, well, that's good, but no, it's, it's not just that, it's really, it's really spiritual growth, where we can go to Sunday school and listen to good sermons and, be, and, and learn more about the Bible and, and grow in our knowledge of God, because we've got to have knowledge of God. And, and someone would say, well, no, it's, it's actually good works. Like all those things are good things, but it's about really just caring for the poor and ministering to the disenfranchised and the, and the widows and the orphans, and, and really that's what it's all about. And certainly in church, you've got people who lean more toward the fellowship and more toward the discipleship and more toward the, um, the, 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 the worship of, of God in the corporate setting. The church, I believe if we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation... And if we see the words of Jesus as he's been resurrected from the dead, I believe we can say that the primary mission of the church is the preaching of the gospel and making more disciples of Jesus. It's the preaching of the gospel and making more disciples of Jesus. Listen, don't, don't let these words fall on you because you're ve- um, kind of in a, you don't hear them because you're so familiar to them. But listen to the words of Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those are the words of Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension, the most important message he could give to those who followed him. Now, why is gospel preaching and making more disciples the primary mission of the church. 
Paul tells the Ephesians that the church, listen to this, the church is God's vehicle to evangelize the world. It's God's vehicle. It's like the church is a vehicle. You can pick the kind of vehicle. It doesn't matter whether it's a chariot or a car or whatever in your mind. But your, but, but you, your understanding needs to realize that the church is the vehicle that goes out and proclaims to the world the gospel and makes more disciples. Listen to what Paul says. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God could have designed any other means to take the gospel all over the world, but he has sovereignly and specifically chosen who to do it? The church. The church. So, so why is gospel preaching and, and making more disciples the primary mission of the church? Because the church is God's vehicle and because the church is the guardian of the truth. Listen to what he tells Pastor Timothy. He says, if I delay, you may know how to ought, ought to behave in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now those six lines we, we've talked about before, but they summarize the truth of the gospel. And the church's very purpose is to guard that truth, protect that truth, and proclaim that truth to the world. The church is the guardian of the truth of the gospel. And I want to tell you this, that, that because the church is that, if the church doesn't preach the gospel and make more disciples, nobody else will. Listen to what Paul tells Pastor Timothy. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Anybody know what the next phrase is? Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Pastor Timothy was busy with all kinds of ministry. Preaching, teaching, counseling believers, training leaders, putting out fires, marrying couples, burying saints, and a whole host of other things. And yet Paul commands him to do the work of an evangelist. Why? Because that's what the church does. That's what the church does. And if we don't do it, nobody will. Now, if you're taking notes, I think it would be good for you to just jot this down right now. For us to fulfill our primary mission here in Calhoun County, we must understand really three things. I'm not going to elaborate much on it, but we need to understand our message, our mission, and our mission field. Our message, our mission, and our mission field. Our message is the gospel. It's the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. We go out and we herald 
as often as we can, as skillfully as we can, as personally as we can, that Jesus Christ was God. He became a man. He was God in human flesh. And He lived gloriously and perfectly. And He loved people with great grace. And He told sinners that they could be forgiven. And He walked with people who were struggling. And He healed people who were suffering under the weight of leprosy and suffering under the weight of demon possession. And He was not afraid of them, but He cared for them and He blessed them and He loved them. And then He ultimately commissioned them to a life of dignity and grace and power. And then He fulfilled all of God's righteous commands and all of of God's righteous standards. But but what He earned for that was not um, blessing and royalty here on earth, but rather cursing and persecution by those who were jealous of Him. And He was put up on a cross. And on that cross... He received the penalty of sinful men, which was crucifixion. And he also received the penalty of a righteous judge in heaven, which was condemnation. And he bared the weight, he bore the weight of my sin and your sin because he loved us so much that he was unwilling for us to go to hell. And then once he paid that penalty, he was buried. And then he rose from the dead on the third day and he defeated all the powers of darkness so that in him we can have life eternal. Now we can say that message right there in a hundred different ways, but that is the message of the gospel that we must declare to our community, our region, and our world. That's the message. And our mission is to take that hope, the hope of salvation in Christ, to the community, the region, and the world. And this is where we want to get right now is our mission field. Our mission field. Because we we talk in terms of community, region, and world church, and we need to think Oxford, Anniston, White Plains, Jacksonville, Mumford, Welburn, and on and on, and Piedmont, and so forth, as we get into the wider region, and then as we extend that thing out, we go all the way, in our terms, Hawaii, and China, and South Africa, and to the ends of the earth. That is our mission field, and I want to tell you something, and then we'll look at the text now. Um, Every bit of our mission field, no matter whether it's in a five-mile radius of right here, a 50-mile radius or a 5,000-mile radius, all cultures are basically religious but lost. Religious but lost. And cultures like ours are are uh, Christianly religious. I'd say that cultures like where the Johnstons are are not Christianly religious but religious nonetheless. And even even in South Africa, the culture is really um, superstitious religious. And um, even witchcraft religious. But all cultures are religious because most all cultures understand that there is a power greater than themselves. General Revelation has said that. There is a power greater than ourselves. There is someone or something that is stronger, bigger, better, that is, that is in charge. And so most Cultures are groping after some type of religious experience to help solve their problems and answer their issues. Please turn to Matthew 7. Please turn to Matthew chapter 7. We are going to be looking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first recorded sermon of Jesus. 
It's, in my view, the, the greatest sermon from the greatest preacher who ever lived. It is both simple and profound. It is straightforward and mind-boggling. It's clear as a bell and challenging to the soul at the very same time. And this, what we're about to read, is the greatest call that has ever been given to a group of people. And it is the call that is available to you and me. And it is the call that is available to all that we proclaim this message to. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. This is one of uh, what theologians call the hard sayings of Jesus. It's called hard not because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to accept. It's hard to embrace. You know, there's really no other way to to understand the words of Jesus than, than the way they are. Very clear, very straightforward. Let's read verses 13 through 27. And as we do, take note of Jesus' teaching style. Notice the comparison and the contrast that he constantly brings up. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Keep your eyes on the text. Starting at the top, notice that Jesus lists two gates. One narrow, one wide. Two ways, one hard, one easy. Two animals, sheep and wolf. Two trees, healthy and diseased. Two fruits, 
good and bad. Two builders, wise and foolish. Two foundations, rock and sand. Two results, standing and fallen. I love this passage because it is so clear. Yes, it's hard, but it is clear. Yes, it's challenging, but it is clear. Jesus Christ, the greatest preacher and the greatest teacher to ever walk the earth, concludes the greatest sermon possibly ever preached, and he makes it as clear as a bell what is necessary to have eternal life. Let's walk through it by looking at really the three parts of this call. First of all, you have the command. The command to enter. Verses 13 and 14. Let's just, let's just take it piece by piece. We have the call right there at the very beginning, the call to enter. He says, enter, enter. This is a command calling for a definitive decision. Listen, church, look down. This is not a, a, a suggestion. It's not an idea or a piece of advice that Jesus is giving. It's not a theory or a philosophy. Listen, he's not presenting one of many good options here. Jesus instructs his hearers to enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't say wait. He doesn't say pause. He doesn't say stand around for a little while and give it some consideration. He doesn't say see which way the religious wind blows next to see if you really want to take this gate or go to another gate. He gives a very clear, definitive, decisive call to enter. He says, enter by the narrow gate. One of the things that this call presupposes is that everybody who is listening is actually outside at some point in their life. Outside. And so anybody who wants to to be in the kingdom of God and to walk through the gates of the kingdom has to make a decision to walk there. Nobody's born in that condition. And so he says, enter. And what we need to first of all understand in this call is that the gospel message is ultimately not merely an invitation. It is a command. Listen, Jesus doesn't say, I'm having this kingdom, and I would just like to invite you to see if you might be interested. You can RSVP or regret by the end of your life. Jesus says, to everybody who is listening, both the disciples who are up near and the crowds that are out beyond, all of these myriads of people who are around him at this point, he commands them to enter. Look back down. Where's the place to enter? The ESV says by. I think the the clearest way to understand that little preposition is through. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, it's narrow, it's, it's small in width, it's, 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 it's limited in its extent. It, it is, it's a gate that, that you have to walk through, you have to enter in. And I think ultimately Jesus would say, I am the narrow gate. And the reason I say that is because he's already said in, in the Gospel of John that we've been studying, that I am the door for the sheep, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter goes on to say later that there is no other name by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus. And Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so I believe Jesus himself is the narrow gate, and he's saying, enter through me and through me alone. And look, he gives us the reason to enter. 
Now, there's kind of the negative part of it and the positive part of it, but look down. He says, enter through the narrow gate, and here's the reason. Negatively, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is very wide. It's big. It's large. It's attractive. It's easily accessible. And I think we want to ask the question, what is this gate? I believe that this gate is religion without regeneration. It is religion without repentance. It's religion without an ongoing faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It is religion that cannot that, 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 that is trying to be fulfilled in the power of the flesh. It is the religion, in our context, church, it is the religion of churchianity. That's what it is. And Jesus is hitting it right on the nose. He says it's, it's an easy way. It's, it's the religion of easy believism. It's the religion of, 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 of faith without repentance. It's the religion that, that, that requires nothing, that costs nothing. It's Christianity light for, for our day and time. It's easy. Now look, what, what happens, church? Look down at the text. For those who go down the easy way, and chose the wide gate. What does it lead to? Destruction. I'm gonna wanna make us uncomfortable for a couple of minutes right here, right now. Destruction is is hell. It, it's condemnation. And I just want to say a few things about hell. Hell is the final dwelling place for people who are judged finally by the Lord. It is a place of fire and darkness, Jude tells us. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus tells us. It is a place of destruction that Paul tells us. It is a place of torment that John tells us in Revelation chapter 20. It is the result of not having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And get this, church, hell is not the absence of God, but the presence of God's wrath and His judgment always. Hell is eternal. It will last forever. Jude 13, Revelation 20, verse 10. Hell is self-chosen. Those who go to hell sentence themselves to it by loving darkness rather than light, by choosing not to worship their Creator, by preferring self-centered sin to self-denying righteousness, and by rejecting Jesus rather than receiving Him through repentance and faith for all of those who heard about Him. J.I. Packer says, Hell appears as God's gesture. Get this, please listen to this. Hell is God's gesture of respect for human choice. Everyone receives what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Those who are in hell will know not only that for their doings they deserve it, but also that in their hearts they chose it. And Jesus says, about that, those who enter by it are many. Those who enter by it are many. Well, that's the negative reason to walk through the, the narrow gate. What, what's the positive? 
Just look back down on the text. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What is this life? It's eternal life. It's the life of God in the soul of man. It's regenerated life. It's new life. It's it's real life. It's a life with joy. A delight in your heart that says, while I haven't deserved it, Christ deserved it on my behalf, and I have applied what He's done for me by having faith in Him. This is a joyful life because even though my circumstances may be trying, my Savior is consistent and faithful, and I always have Him. It's a life that that has hope beyond the the, the claustrophobic confines of our own self-centered passions and desires. It's a life with hope and joy and peace. That even though there may be a storm all around me, I have peace in Christ because I have repented of my sins and walked through that narrow gate. It is a, a life with authentic passion for the glory of God and the joy of all people. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, real life, Jesus says, and He wants us to walk through that life. Listen, I I know that in a gathering of this, most of us already profess Christ. But it has been my prayer this week that if you call yourself a Christian, but you realize in this very moment that you don't have the life of God in your own soul, You don't have the joy of God in your own heart. You don't have the peace of God that resides in your mind and in the very essence and fabric of your heart. Then today, I'm going to call you to walk through the narrow gate so that you can cross over from destruction to life, from damnation to heaven, so that you can experience the life of God in your own soul. You can do that today. Now, look down again. He says, This way. Is difficult to enter. It's, it's hard. It's hard. The, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. And I, I don't want to mince words because Jesus didn't. I think five times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record Jesus making a statement that if anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And, and what, what Jesus is doing is he's essentially making that same call through this narrow gate language, and he's saying this is what it takes to walk through the narrow gate. It takes self-denial. We are naturally born in a, in a state where we don't want to deny ourselves. We actually want to fulfill all of our heart's desires, no matter how idolatrous they are, no matter how empty they are in their final ultimate end, we want to follow our selfish ways. And, and, and he says, no, you've got to deny yourself. And then you got to have you have to have this this suffering. You got to take up a cross. Listen, the way of Christianity is hard. It's difficult. People persecute you. Um, you suffer sometimes. It's it's relative to the gospel, and sometimes you just suffer because you're a broken human being. It is a hard life, nonetheless. And then it's a submissive life. You submit all that you are and all that you have to Jesus Christ. You you don't leave certain things out and say, oh, he can't touch this relationship or he can't have this desire of mine. I'm going to tuck this away in my closet over here and I'll bring it out if I don't really like this Christian thing. No, Jesus is saying that the narrow gate requires self-denial and suffering and submission to all that he is and all that you can be through him. That's what it is. It's hard And finally, under this heading, look, those who find it are few. 
Those who find it are few. You know, personally, I try to maintain um, in the power of the Holy Spirit the most charitable judgments of all who profess faith in Jesus. If someone tells me they are a believer in Jesus, I believe that they're a believer in Jesus until a pattern of their life demonstrates that they're just, they don't trust him, they don't live for him, they don't like him. That, okay, I, I try to maintain the most charitable judgments because I don't know, and you don't know either, right? But this is what I do know. Jesus says that those who find the way of eternal life are very few. And he's actually talking to thousands of religious people who believe the Bible when he made that statement. That's sobering. Those who find it are few. And church, this is the reason why I'm preaching this message, this text today, is because our culture where we live is not so different than the culture in which Jesus lived. Religious, but lost. Believes the Bible, but lost. Would confess the gospel, but lost. Because they have not denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed after Jesus. Self-denial, suffering, and submission to the lordship of Jesus. Listen, when you come to Jesus, you do not come to him on your terms. You come to him on his terms. The one who issues the call sets the terms. And his terms are self-denial, suffering, and submission to him. Okay, these next two will fall um, very fluidly, I think, from, from that point. Let's look at the caution to beware. So you've got the call to enter, and now you've got the caution to beware. So he makes this call, beware! Be cautious and alert. The grammars are a little different. This is the only other command that we find in this passage. The first one was enter, and now it is beware. But what's interesting, the, when, when, he's, when he, or otherwise he said, uh, the other time he said enter, he was saying make a definitive call right here, right now, enter through the door. Enter through the gate that I'm offering to you. But here, it's in a present tense. In other words, he's, he's, he's basically saying continually beware of the risks and dangers that are there. Beware, be cautious, always be alert because there are risks around every turn. There are dangers lurking always in a spiritual manner. And then he gives us the people to beware of. He says, beware of false prophets. Some of you who are interested in semantics would, would be... Uh, probably piqued your interest to know that this word is pseudo-prophetes. Pseudo-prophetes. False prophets. These are people who claim to speak on behalf of God, but misrepresent God. Beware of false prophets. And then he gives us the reason. Because they come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Why would a false prophet come to you in sheep's clothing? Because if he came to you as a wolf, what would you do? You'd run. You would run. But, but in coming to you as a sheep, sounding like a sheep, 
looking like a sheep, without inspecting the internal nature of this particular animal, you're thinking, oh, man, sounds good, looks good, seems gentle enough, seems harmless enough. I think I'll listen to him. Okay. Church, I want to be very clear. We live in a day and age in which messages go out on social media, audio, video, in-person, simulcast, you name it. Messages are going out, and you have more access to more religion than anybody who has ever lived in the history of the world. You do. And I just want to tell you that you can listen to preachers and teachers and spiritual leaders for two times, three times, four times, and you, as a member of Redeemer Church, can say, sounds good, looks good, maybe not be the kind style that we use at our church, but I think it's pretty good. Certainly looks that way. A lot of people are flocking. Um, I get excited when I hear about it. It's very practical, um, emotional even. And I, all of a sudden, church, you can start, you start listening and you realize if you've got your bewareness tuned in, where's the word in all of this? Is the message rooted in the word? Or is the person using the word as, as a way to position whatever the message is that's coming out of his mind or out of his heart? And all of a sudden you find yourself straying. And I just want to tell you that that kind of message is being proliferated. It is being proclaimed all over, not only our specific culture, but in the United States of America and is being shipped out into um, all of the other countries and nations of the world. And we've got to, as Jesus would say, beware of this message. Now look, he says there's a way to beware. Church, look down at the text. What is the way to beware of false prophets? What can you do? Yeah, look at the fruit that they bear. Look at the fruit of their theology. Look at the fruit of their message. Look at the fruit of their life. Look at the fruit of their their followers even. Look at the fruit of their lives. And then you will know whether they are the real deal or not. But we must beware of false prophets because they are slippery, they are dangerous, and they are highly influential in our day and time. Let's finally look at the counsel. The counsel to hear and do beginning in verse 21. So we've got the call, we've got the caution, and now the counsel that Jesus gives as he closes his sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What what Jesus is basically about to say is... um, A public profession of faith without a fruitful demonstration of faith is completely worthless. A public profession of faith in Jesus, apart from a fruitful demonstration of faith in Jesus, is a worthless profession. What kind of claims do these false converts make? 
They, they, they make claims of, 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 of religious exercise. Look, we prophesied. We removed demons. We did mighty, many mighty miracles in your name. But church, look down at their testimony. Look down at their testimony. Notice that they weren't saying, well, we were poor in spirit and we mourned over our sin and we were meek. We hungered and thirsted after the righteousness of God. We were, we were merciful to those who needed mercy. We were pure in heart. We, we made peace. They're not making claims like that. Look, they're not saying we were sought to the earth in the light of the world. They weren't saying we, we, we sought forgiveness, we repented of our sins and reconciled with our brothers and sisters when we were at odds with them. They're not making testimonies of saying we gave to the needy and we forgave others and we trusted the Lord and we treated others the way that we wanted to be treated. No, they're not making those kinds of statements. They're not saying that we exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're not making those kinds of statements because they did not bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They bore religious fruit. And I want to say to you today, that if you are banking on your religious fruit, if you're banking on your church attendance, if you're banking on um, doing some religious exercises, if you're, if you're banking on doing some good works, then I can tell you, you're going to find yourself bankrupt when you come face to face with the one who makes the call enter by the narrow gate. There is only one way to enter. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that produces the works of the Spirit of Christ, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you want to ask the question, how can I know if I have real faith? How can I know if I have walked through that narrow gate and that hard road? I tell you, there are really just two, two, two simple ways. Do you have faith in Jesus and do you have fruit that Jesus produces in your life? Faith and fruit, faith and fruit, faith and fruit. That, that's, that's how you can reach some assurance about the quality of your faith. Do I believe in the person and work of Jesus alone, or do I believe in Him plus my good works, plus my religious exercises, plus my, my spiritual uh, disciplines that I carry on, or plus my honesty, or plus my morality, or plus my staying intact with my family? Am I trusting in that, or am I trusting in Christ who is the narrow gate and Him alone? And in trusting Him, am I bearing the fruit of repentance and faith in Him? that the Spirit of Christ is, is bringing forth in my life. We see the, the worthlessness of religion um, here. But Jesus closes this whole sermon, and for us it will be closing as well, between the wise builder and the foolish builder. And the bottom line is this, is that Jesus is saying, build your life. Build your soul. Build your destiny on me. I am the rock. I am sturdy. I am steadfast. I am immovable. I am unshakable. And this is the thing, church, is that when you build your life on him who is immovable and unshakable and inflappable, even when we feel very flappable, 
even when we feel very shakable, even when we are fragile, even when our faith is weak, all we have to do is look to Him and be guarded by Him and protected by Him. Because as the winds blow, as the rains fall, as everything beats around the house, we are safe inside because we are standing on Him and not ourselves. If you're prone to not feel saved very often, maybe it's because you aren't saved or maybe it's because you're not trusting in the rock, Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because you're trying to trust in your circumstances and your morality and your religion and your spirituality. Don't trust in that. Trust in Him and in Him alone. And in that way, you will be unflappable and unshakable finally and fully because He is. All religious people it doesn't matter whether it's churchianity or Hinduism or Islam or atheism or agnosticism or any other type of ism, any other type of religion apart from the religion that enters through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ, that religion is building itself on sand. And that house will fall one day. And there will not even be the picking up of pieces. Jesus will say to every person who built their life on anything or anybody other than Him, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you in a saving, redeeming, relational way. I only know you as an object of my judgment because you rejected who I am and what I've done for you. Let's pray. If you would, just please be quiet. Just reverence this moment. I want to ask you right now, where do you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ? Look, it's one thing for you to be in a church. It's another thing for you to be in Christ. How have you personally responded to the call of Jesus on your life to enter by the narrow gate? The greatest thing that you will ever do is to give your life to Christ. And I want to call you right now. I know you're in church. I know that most of you come every Sunday. But I want to call you right now to enter the narrow gate. I'm not calling you to be a church member or to be a cultural Christian. I'm calling you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ by denying yourself and taking up your cross and following after Him, walking through that narrow gate. And some of you probably think you're saved, but you're not. Fact is, is you've never done real spiritual business with Christ. You've never come all the way to receive the gift of what He's done for you. And I want to say this, it is easy to be part of the crowd. It is easy to come here every Sunday. It's easy to be part of the people who gather. People want to be where people are. People want to be with the crowd. I want to call you right now to step out from the crowd of people of of religion 
and step into the hard, difficult way of Christ. Walk through the narrow gate. Trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. And follow Him all the days of your life, no matter how hard and difficult and trying it is. Because I will tell you, He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Then one day, every tribe and every nation and every tongue will confess that He is the Lord of glory. That He is the Savior of the world. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will do it because it's mandatory. Others will do it because it is a joy. Will you fall into the small few group of people who made the decision to walk down the difficult road of following after Jesus today? We're going to sing. And if you don't know Jesus and you want to know Him, come see me. I'll be standing over to the side of the building and I'll help you follow down that road.